Hello everyone and welcome to Rolling Forward. I am your host Ben Baldieri and thank you for tuning in. Rolling Forward is dedicated to exploring topics related to mental health and sports and the interplay between the two. I'll be talking to high performers in various areas such as sport, entrepreneurship and business about their experiences with mental health and the struggles they have had and in doing so seeking to broaden the dialogue. Mental health is a huge issue which has historically not received the recognition it deserves so I'm looking to do my bit to change that. My guest today is Corey Arth. Corey serves as the General Physical Therapy Council at UP Clinic in Shanghai. UP Clinic is the first physical therapy clinic of its kind in mainland China seeking to transform the healthcare industry. It seeks to do that through facilitating the transition away from leading with the surgical option to a more conservative approach through correction of soft tissue problems and imbalances. Outside of his professional life, Corey is the director of FitFan, which is a community started in Shanghai with the aim of making fitness accessible to everyone, everywhere. This movement has since expanded to 10 cities worldwide. He is also an amateur endurance athlete and recently completed an Ironman in Langkawi Island, Malaysia. In this conversation, we dig into Corey's educational background and his work with elite NFL players, tactical athletes and other such high-performing individuals, and also his journey to China and business efforts. Please excuse the background noise in this episode as things got slightly loud. This episode will also be the last episode of season one of Rolling Forward. I'm going to be taking the next few weeks over Chinese New Year to reassess and refocus the direction that I wish to take the podcast. Don't worry though, as it will be back soon. For now, please enjoy this conversation with Corey Arth. Corey, welcome. Thank you. How's it going? Yeah, good. Very good indeed. My, my yeah. legs are a little bit tight, and I understand that yours are probably slightly tight at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is no. the what is the current challenge? The current challenge is the uh, the infamous Markothon, which is simple enough. Just run five k or uh, thirty minutes every day. I'm not I'm not sure why. It kind of works against some of my professional uh, principles as a physical therapist you know there should be some amount of recovery mixed into the training but this is just one of those kind of social peer pressure challenges so yeah the best kind of challenge yeah why not but uh yeah man uh, happy to be here fantastic um could you tell us a little bit about your background yeah so i uh been in shanghai for about three years um i'm a sports physical therapist uh by training and uh largely came over just recognizing that there's a massive need for some kind of guidance when it comes to movement, physical health that isn't oriented around, you know, orthopedic surgery or medication uh, or just complete bed rest and hot water. There's got to be some some gray area in between and uh, seems as though doing the simple things consistently well could make a, a decent impact over here. So that's largely why I would explain why I'm here. But there's a yeah, there's been a path leading up to it. Fantastic. So your your bachelor's was in biopsychology. Yeah. So is this kind of feeding back into you mentioned the whole idea of movement being medicine? Yeah. Is this where that idea started? Well, actually, I think it all started. Uh, the interest in sports medicine came about in high school. We mm-hmm. had a, a visitor who was the, at the time the head one of the head athletic trainers of the San Jose Sharks uh, NHL team. Uh, and she'd basically described, uh, yeah, you know, I get to work with the players, I get to work on sports injuries, I get to watch all the games from, you know, rinkside and travel with the team. I was like, holy crap, that's a job. You know, at that time, I wasn't really sure what I was doing. So I started looking into it a little bit, uh, then went to UC Santa Barbara, and, and it was an unaccredited uh, kind of athletic training program, which meant I did about 
1,600 hours of uh, water bottles and ice bags. And, and yeah, I got to do some athlete care as well. But I think that's when I realized just how overworked and underappreciated a, a profession it was. Yep. Uh, but that did lead to uh, yeah, a disenfranchisement with water bottles and ice bags. But I uh, got more into the idea of like, okay, it's actually pretty cool to be there when an injury happens and then just see the whole process through uh, to recovery and performance. So also at that time, I'd, I'd kind of thought like, okay, I came in strictly bio, uh, father was a physician. Uh, I'd heard numerous times, you know, you want to be a doctor like your dad. And I was adamantly no. Like, no I do not. Um, <laughs> and then something about being in Santa Barbara gave me a better work-life balance appreciation. I wasn't quite so hardcore on med school just at the time. So I switched to the psychology department pretty much the same time I started looking at like the the chemical basis for behavior started doing some studies on uh, how both pharmaceutical and and illicit drug use can kind of even change your your whole identity and perception and it's all kind of got this physiological chemical basis to it Um, that stuff turned out to be super helpful actually looking at the the abnormal psychology different personalities, learning patterns and whatnot. That so was there any being, particular area within that that you were kind of focusing on? Because the, the biological basis of behavior is obviously, it's a, it's a huge yeah. topic. Was there specifically one area looking at, for example, was it like addiction or um, different personality types, like type A personality, so on and so forth? Yeah, I think it was very physiological. Uh, I I kind of threw one of my favorite professors who, you know, she was just like no BS, straightforward and everything she knew, which is hilarious. Uh, She had her own research lab. And so I ended up working with her amongst my overcommitment to too many things started right around then. I was trying to do the, the athletic training and some like outdoor leadership training stuff and then working in this research lab where I would be giving mice injections of PCP and cocaine and all kinds of stuff and just seeing what would happen. Uh, we even had this place preference model. You know, we'd give them the, whatever they wanted in one half of this this bin, and then the other half di- different color, different texture. I might have heard about this story. Like the mice who had yeah. the cocaine didn't want anything other than the cocaine right. yeah, until the, they died. The the, the, <laughs> the cocaine mice like they loved that half of the bin that they got the drug in, and and they were like happy days. And then uh, we actually uh, found we could clear addiction behavior entirely. All it took was surgically inserting this little metal tube right through the top of their head under anesthesia. Give them something called histone deacetylase, which uh, prevents the unfolding of DNA very specifically in one part of the brain, and we could totally cure their addiction. You know, they were they were relatively fine. So, uh, you know, the, the takeaway is we've yet to get to the point where we're drilling holes in people's heads uh, to give them these these different chemicals. But um, understanding the the biology mm-hmm. of behavior and how everything we kind of perceive ourselves to be has a very real uh, physical and chemical basis to it was just cool. And then going to school in Santa Barbara, Isla Vista, I got to walk down the street and be like, oh, I can see some of these behaviors just with the different just people around happening. me. Yeah. yeah. So I think right around that time was when I started looking at not not so much sport medicine, but looking into the doctor to physical therapy is something mm-hmm. like when they, when they talk about the prereqs, it was abnormal psych, obviously strong science background, but something that I felt like would be cool based on the athletic training experience. And I felt like I'd have more contact time with the people I was working with. Um, I was also looking for something that I wasn't going to be, you know, sitting at a desk most of the day. So I think that's how it started. 
So this this research lab, what was their specific focus? Because I spent some time during my undergraduate working in a research lab as well. Um, it was a wet lab looking into the genetic markers involved in things like muscle growth and that sort of thing. So my undergraduate thesis was the impact of testosterone on myogen and gene expression in human skeletal muscle primary cells harvested from the vastus lateralis. Nice. I basically (laughs) grew some muscle from one of the PhD supervisor's legs in a dish and then dosed it with steroids and watched watched what happens, which was pretty sweet. What was the focus of this lab? Yeah. Because jabbing metal rods in the heads of mice and then... Sounds barbaric. but actually, I mean, it's probably better than letting them coke themselves to death. <laughs> it, was, it was actually pretty technical skill. Of course, we'd minimize harm on any of the animals yeah. that we were working with, uh, and they do okay right up until the point where we would you know, take their brains and slice it up for studies. But uh, yeah, so it was really looking at, uh, I think, behavior of addiction, uh, and it was primarily focused on alcohol and cocaine, even though we had a fun drawer with all kinds of stuff that you know, had a special key. But uh, yeah, no, I, think, I think a lot of it was just, uh, it was more behavioral. Um, but yeah, it allowed me to develop some skills going in late nights, you know, kind of, uh, doing these stereotactic surgeries and then, uh, doing some of the cryo slicing for the, the brain tissue and whatnot and staining. And it's good to appreciate as another one of those things. I, I think I always consider myself as more of an academic. Uh, but I, once again, once you get into the rigor of being in a lab environment, you're just like, oh shit, oh, this no. is, yeah, this is probably not for my long term. Exactly. You are <laughs> preaching to the choir. Like feeding steroids to muscle in a dish sounds cool until you're sat feeding the muscle in that dish in the lab behind the hood with the gloves on and the coat on for the sixth hour that day yeah a few of those experiences where it's good to appreciate the process you exactly know? So then context you can, yeah better appreciate all the work that uh people put into it and, and name on a few papers trying to open doors later on uh so yeah actually coming out of it i wasn't sure if I was going to get into the program, I wanted to, but I, I ended up going up to <coughs> San Francisco at UCSF, which is pretty much where I wanted to be, mm-hmm. and that was sweet. It was a, I mean, good excuse to be in the city for three years, yes. and that probably led to some of the physiology changes within myself that I'm sure we'll talk about. Yes. <laughs> so this was your your bachelor's. Then was it grad school, like PhD level, or doctor, yeah, in physical therapy? What yeah. Came next. It's a professional specific doctorate, so yep. just like a. Doctorate of uh, Veterinary Medicine okay. or, or of Dentistry, uh, so it's just a DPT, mm-hmm. uh, which was a relatively new thing at that time. They're kind of shifting everybody towards the doctorate level, uh, more so just adding like differential diagnosis of knowing when to spot something that's not a musculoskeletal issue. So the idea was they were going to have more and more people go directly to a physical therapist uh, rather than having to go through an ortho. But if that's the case, then every once in a while you have to you know, kind of see when something's up, you know, Mm -hmm. and and actually even as a student, I was able to discover someone who had cancer just by listening to the right kind of red flags where I was like, okay, you should go get that checked out. And sure enough, you know, just by knowing more of what you don't know and knowing when to send someone to somebody else who knows a lot more, um, I think that was that extra year. So again, that the importance of having the wider context is it yeah. knowing where your skill set fits and then understanding that you're not going to know everything again? You don't know what you don't know. Yeah, my I, that was in, and carrying that theme, my very first job coming out of grad school, I had this phenomenal mentor who I'm, I'm sure I'll talk more about. But one of the first things he said is, uh, you know, what you what you think you know is way up here, but what you actually know is way down here, and that that ratio is not going to change. You're always going to you know not know far more than what you do know, and uh, despite all the time and money you've invested in this, you actually don't know shit. 
Uh, therefore, I'm only going to let you do a certain number of things, but make sure you do those things at a, a high and consistent level. Uh, so that, that level of kind of humility, but also mixed with this kind of stay hungry, stay humble type of mindset mm-hmm. was uh, particularly useful coming straight out of the gate, just to be kind of put all the way back down at, at square one. He's like, well done. You've got this far. Forget everything. Yeah. Start again. <laughs> yeah. He's like, everything they told me, literally, he was like, you know, everything that you just spent all that time learning, you're only going to use about 5% of it, if even. So, you know, good for you. You got the license. You got the paper. Uh, now now it's Now the learning starts. Yeah. Awesome. Nice. So what was your, your first job out of school? Uh, I actually really reluctantly had gone back home. So I, I, I hail from Lake Tahoe, Truckee, California, like pretty much... I call it like a podunk, liberal, redneck mountain town, uh, famous for the Winter Olympics and cannibalism. But uh, nice. yeah, so <laughs> so the the guy that uh, kind of reached out to my director once again, I had no idea. Without having much direction, my my first instinct was maybe I should go for more schooling and go to a residency program and just kind of wait it out. Uh, but I had this guy contact the director of the program, said, "Hey, you know, I got some uh, some high level athletes up in the mountains looking for somebody who might be willing to come up," and so. Like most highly educated, uh, you know, late twenty-year-olds of our of our generation, I moved back home with my parents straight after grad school, which I didn't want to do. But the the guy looked me in the eyes and said, "Hey, I can't pay you very much. I can't even promise a, a big patient caseload. But pretty much everyone you're going to work with is either a, an Olympic snowboarder or a, a high-level uh, endurance athlete. So you'll you'll at least learn a lot." And he said, "If you're good enough, after maybe two three years of experience." I might be able to arrange for you to uh, travel internationally and be sent different corners of the globe to do this kind of thing. And so that, that was enough to, to hook me in. And then uh, little did I know about two months after that, I walked in one Friday and he had a big ass goofy grin on his face. And he's like, so how do you feel about going to China? And that was, I was just like, oh shit. All right. <laughs> and so it wasn't yeah. two or three years down the line, but okay. <laughs> yeah. So things, things evolved quickly, but there, there was a lesson in there of just, Hey, you know, stay open to the yeah. possibilities. Uh, don't, don't necessarily make yourself a barrier. And if uh, I just making numbers up, if you're kind of in the, the 10% profile of people who do try not to close doors unnecessarily, then yeah, I'm, I'm in China now. So yeah, <laughs> wasn't part of the plan. I mean, I don't think I've met someone yet who Isn't, China has been yeah. part of the plan for. <laughs> so yeah. that's not not a unique story. Um, yeah. So, what is there any any of those first athletes that you worked with, um, having kind of come out of school where you've got all of this book smarts and all of this knowledge? It's all paper knowledge, and then you were faced with someone who none of it really fit with. Yeah, I mean, I think some of the early lessons were uh, the more complicated something became, the more simple the initial interventions. And actually going into it, I wasn't so gung-ho on, on just doing sport ortho stuff. I actually kind of wanted to disprove that. So through school, you know, they kind of throw you into everything. They throw you into like burn units and they throw you into, uh, you know, like the first hospital rotation I had was in the medical nephrology unit. It was actually in Reno, Nevada, which was special because you'd go in there and you'd have these kind of recovering alcoholics on dialysis and their families are bringing them vodka and plastic bottles and you're just like, oh boy. (laughs) So once again, good to have the contrast there. Uh, I did everything. I did research in pediatrics, like watching infants crawl. And I was like, okay, this is interesting, but probably not my line of work. Um, so I basically tried to disprove that I wanted to do sports medicine and then of course completely affirm that that's the environment I wanted to be in. 
find all the things that you don't want to do. Yeah, but some good lessons along the way. You know, there's this one uh, incredible woman at UCSF named Nancy Beal, and she was kind of renowned for working on the world's most difficult Parkinson's patients. And everyone's like, my God, Nancy, how how do you help these people with such severe impairments? And, and she just very casually said, find the impairments, fix the impairments. You know, quit, quit thinking it so much. Just find some yeah. problems and fix go after problems. it. Yeah. Yeah, so with a lot of these guys, even the high-level guys, I've had, uh, as it went from kind of Olympic-level snowboarders to eventually going to more NFL, NBA, MLB-type stuff, um, my buddies would say, hey, I don't, I don't even know how you do this. Like, how, how do you even go about trying to help such a high-level person? And the answer was kind of easy. First of all, they have tremendous problems themselves. They compensate really well. But because of those compensations, they have issues all over the place. And then what would be a relatively small difference for somebody else, maybe like a... 10 degree increase in hamstring flexibility for the average desk worker. It's not going to help them too much, but for those real high level guys, you know, extra 10 degrees of movement. Yeah. Yeah. So really trying not to overthink it, simple things consistently well, and and understanding that even small changes, especially for a high endurance athlete can make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. So it's easier, I guess, than you think. Keep things simple. (laughs) So this, um, this mentor was, was the the guy who sent you to China? Was that the the same mentor? Yeah, friend of a friend. So the 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 one guy that I was working for, uh, Scott Williams, he then kind of linked me to this guy named Darcy Norman, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of underappreciated Darcy at the time. Uh, you know, I'd kind of heard that he did international sport, but I didn't really quite understand what. Um, he ended up being the kind of head physio of the German national team in the Brazilian World Cup. So there's a picture of him holding the World Cup as kind of a priceless artifact. So that was. One good thing, and then he ended up being the the head of performance for Asse Roma in, in Italy. So he, he knew his stuff, but th- this guy was just full of little ticking time bombs. You know, he'd kind of walk out the door and say, uh, "Hey, good evening," and uh, it's uh, it's who you know that gets you there, and what you know that keeps you there. See you tomorrow. You know, like just these little the little things that he it's would say. Tidbit, yeah, yeah, but he ended up being um, a, a pretty uh, a good guide for the whole process of it. Even when he was at Roma, he would kind of say like, "Hey." You know, you got all these egos in the room, and you're trying to build a system, and it's kind of like building a, like a six-lane highway where all the athletes and the people you're working with, they have the freedom to, you know, change lanes, change speeds, follow other people. They have this freedom of choice, but when they're on the structure that you've built, everyone's heading the same direction. So some of those things are very similar to what I'm trying to do now mm-hmm. uh, in Shanghai is, is recognizing that you have to allow for all this freedom of choice and identity and, and, you know, people obviously trying to figure out what they're doing. But Mm -hmm. as long as they're kind of following the structure that you're trying to build, you hope everyone's moving the same direction. Mm -hmm. And have you found from a, from a cultural standpoint, um, the way that you approach building that structure is different in China versus the way that you were doing in the States? Because obviously if you're working with high level athletes, you kind of, you tell them to do something and they're going to do it. Yeah. Whereas here you're working with just the general population and you're navigating a new culture with it as well. Like, what's yeah. that experience been like? Yeah, so the, to the, the finish the timeline, so I actually didn't stay in China because that was back in 2013. Oh, okay. uh, it was a two-month assignment where I was uh, you know, recruited to work for a provincial softball team in a Yunnanese jungle. It was a militarized training facility with four soft, I think two softball fields and four baseball fields and like I said, just in the middle of a Chinese jungle, uh, which was... So this uh, is the, uh, this is the, the physiological changes. 
Yes. Post UCSF. Yeah, yeah. So the the irony of sitting for twelve hours a day and then uh, you know studying on how to help other people move and, and having the world's greatest wine and food constantly at your uh, at your availability. So yeah, I probably picked up. I was in in pounds. I was like, pushing two sixty five, almost one hundred twenty five kg, and it wasn't wow. it wasn't healthy. It was to the point where my professors were like, "You can enjoy a lifelong uh, experience of back pain. Like inevitably, your disc is going to explode. Good luck." Uh, so yeah, so I mean, I was, yeah. I appreciate yeah. that. Well, <laughs> and that was, that was right around that time. So I'd finished, yeah. uh, I think it was one year after I came back from China is when I then got the chance to, uh, start helping support the NFL combine through Exos. So the first Exos contract I took was through, uh, China. It was athletes performance at the time. So they're just a U.S. based company that mm-hmm. does uh, contract work with either individual athletes mm-hmm. or sports teams. And it was at that time of like, Hey, you know, a lot, you seem to work well, you know, you got... You definitely have the skills, but athletes kind of like to work with people that look the part. And I think there was a big disconnect there where I wasn't quite seeing myself the same way, but then I started looking at it as like, all right, shit. And, you know, you start looking at Facebook pictures and you're like, oh, God. So, yeah, there, def- there definitely was like a little bit of a visual disconnect with where I, I wasn't ever worried about the physicality of it. But, yeah, when it got up there, it was just like, holy crap, how did that happen? That's when you start seeing pictures on Facebook. It's like, oh, who's that guy? It's like, motherfucker. Yeah, <laughs> and there's still some good ones on there. Uh, some good pictures have been circulating around even even here on, on even WeChat. Here, even here so on WeChat, yeah. <laughs> you find, find my profile, you'll be able to look at a couple of them. But, uh, yeah, it's funny enough, I think just by taking the China assignment, you know, it was pretty much fresh out of school. And they I remember my visa paperwork going to the – the, the Chinese athletic school, they're like, this is a world-class elite physical therapist. And I was like, I just graduated two months ago. So <laughs> not feeling the elite side of that, but I was That's a little nice. self-conscious of, you know, I'm going into this Olympic program. Uh, am I going to be able to provide the value they're looking for? Turns out nobody has any which ways up. Uh, they have no idea what, you know, even like what a, mm-hmm. like a high-performance environment with all these different services and one system would look like, something that Exos did really well. Uh, but came over and realized, you know, the sport and medicine culture was essentially uh, lay on the table, get some soft tissue, maybe some some needles with some electrodes, maybe some ultrasound. And that was the really the extent of it. And even just looking at how much does this joint move or can you use this particular muscle, something that's kind of fundamental to our training uh, was non-existent. So even just doing even the, the fundamental by the book stuff, well, I realized at that point that, yeah, you could make a a big impact just by looking and being curious about, yeah. you know, what you're seeing. Uh, mix that with two months in a uh, horrendously hot jungle with, uh, you know, it was kind of funny. Like, they're like, well, you can't really touch the, the, the players that are training every day, but we got these banged up players that you can train six to eight hours a day. So I ended up doing like three different workouts with them, you know, and the diet definitely changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. A little less wine, a little less dairy, uh, a few more freshwater snails and some rooster ankles. So I think that was maybe the first clue that diet has a large impact on <laughs> on things. I think I dropped 15, 20 kg in about two months. So it was, and I remember when I first showed up, my my translator's first question was, "Is your father fat too?" And so, so like within five words, she had managed to insult both myself and my father and our and our physicality, which was impressive. That's a, but one fell swoop. Yeah, <laughs> but no, that I think that was a good kickstart for uh, for everything else. Nice. So that was your your first foray into China. Right? Yeah, and then, and then this this led to Exos. Yeah, so that led to being invited back. Uh, it was, like I said, part of it I'd like to give credit to still being patient and open minded because yeah. when I came back, 
still living with my parents uh, to a certain point and had this little shack of a house and you know, couldn't really figure out what was going on. Uh, it was right around that time uh, that uh, Derek Rose was actually doing his NBA rehab from his first ACL in L.A. And so he liked his physio there so much that he ended up taking her back with him to the Bulls. And that opened up a spot in the Los Angeles facility where I went through this insanely rigorous uh, process. I look back on it, I'm like, why, did, why were they? I mean, I know they were trying to vet me, but afterwards, like, I'd never seen anything like it. Um, but got the chance to go down there, and that's what started uh, a lot of the NFL Combine work. Got the chance to work with pretty much every different discipline of, uh, of performance, but working on the same principles really helps someone move more efficiently. If you do, their performance goes up, risk of injury goes down. So same kind of core fundamentals you can help just about anybody. Uh, and then that later led to Qatar and Brazil, and then eventually that that's when I broke free later and came to China. Nice. Can you tell us any more about that process, that vigorous vetting process, or is that kind of a uh, lock it was, and key? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, just no. I mean, as far as it was, I remember it was like a, an hour-long interview with uh, one of the person who was like the head physio of the, the whole system, then kind of a two-hour interview uh, with Sue Falsoni, who ended up becoming uh, the first female head ATC or PT of any major sports team with the LA Dodgers. Uh, so she was one of the, she like, I'd missed her phone call. She called me directly and I was like in the mountain somewhere. And I, I was just like one of the first, I was like, fuck, damn it. <laughs> no way. I just missed that phone call. Um, we, we later now, we're now we're, we're good friends. We got the chance to work together. But yeah, I think that was the kind of, wasn't so starstruck, but it was starting to become a little more real. It was like, okay, now I'm in the network of these people. Even when I went to the Arizona facility the first time I'd, uh, opened the door for Matt Kemp, and that was one of the as a, the baseball players, like one of the first times I was like, "Oh shit, it's beast mode!" And like this, it's like a, such a such a person in my mind that was like at the top of his game. So uh, faced with them, that, yeah, like, and then and then of course his response was, "Thanks, bro," you know, and just walks by. So at some point, there was definitely a process of being a little a little you know starstruck or being a super fan of uh, the athletic world, but. Um, when you start working with these guys, like they really are, they're, they're straightforward and, and, you know, they have needs as, you know, similarly to, to everyone. Mm-hmm. And the best thing you can do is just one show that you know, you're what you're doing, but, uh, you know, treat them no differently than you would anybody else. So, uh, so that led from LA then, yeah, took, actually, I, I was originally supposed to come back over to China around, this would have been 2014 ish, had a buddy, the same one that brought me over here. Now he called me up. He's like, Hey man. Come over, uh, you know, buy your ticket. I got you hooked up, and then I I bought the ticket. And then he's like, "Just kidding. There was massive corruption at the hospital that I thought you were going to go to, so we're going to have to cancel that job. You should stay in the states. Like, don't come over." <laughs> so, so I had taken the credit from that flight, and then uh, taken a, a job through Exos in Qatar, and lived in Doha for a year. Nice. Which has some similarities to China, believe it or not. Uh, I think the mentality that most people go there for three to four years, try to maybe pay off some debts and then get the heck out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think I think going back to your other question, it was more the work in places like Qatar and Brazil, really, where I noticed the differences to such a structured, integrated system in the U.S. to where you'd go there, you'd have all this content and, and kind of this frame of reference in the system, and you go there and it's just mayhem, okay. you know, like they paid yeah. this exorbitant fees to get us over there as, as special contractors, and they're like, Hey, you know why? Why isn't our team winning? And in Qatar, you're like, well, because none of your players are sleeping. They haven't seen a, a weight room uh, their entire lives, and they're all dehydrated. And uh, hey, your your off season is during Ramadan. All those things are not not helpful. Uh, we're gonna do the best we can to give them hip and core stability, but there's some there's some other issues there's at some play here. Serious issues that need to be fixed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, so yeah, I think between those experiences, that's, that's when you start looking at it and say like, okay, rather than being so detailed and trying to implement this ideological structure, you really have to just cut it down to the basics. Yeah. Yeah. So Exos had three, three key areas of focus. Uh, it was the, the higher level athletes, yeah. the tactical athletes, yeah. and then the more corporate yeah, well. yeah, yeah. So, uh, like, as a company, they're fascinating. So they identified that this, you know, kind of taking many different services and not so much reinventing the services, but trying to put them together in a system that was more efficient. Uh, it was something that you know they thought could bring value. So they didn't necessarily take credit for inventing any different component, but they figured, hey, let's create one place where an athlete or or any client can come and get all that they need more efficiently, just get more work in, and usually the result is better. Okay. So. They, they first thought like, okay, this is going to be most valuable for the high profile athletes. Like they obviously have the most inherent value, but that's kind of a finicky industry when it comes to pro athletics because the money's going almost everywhere else. And you're managing egos as well. To a, yeah. A I mean, it was like extent. personally, I helped uh, this one guy who should have been medically kicked out of the NFL. We kind of covered up perhaps a couple MRIs and in some medical records from his school, which I won't <laughs> name which one. And then, uh, you know, ended up putting through like eight weeks of just, uh, like you said, you tell these guys what to do and they'll they'll do it. But eight weeks of intensive uh, kind of physical correction. And then he gets taken, you know, one of the top picks in the NFL makes $21 million out of the gate. And, and you're, you're super ecstatic for him, but you're just like, you know, at the same time, there wasn't a return on your on your work investment so much. So it was more yeah. of a passion project. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that part... Athletics can be challenging, and then uh, they started looking at the tactical athletes, the military, kind of assuming the government was going to want to protect the investment of all this training they were giving to their elite guys, which is cool. Uh, but even then, then the like 2008, the economy kind of went to shit, and, and that made that a little more vulnerable. So then they started working more the the corporate health and wellness contracts, kind of your Google, Intel, Tesla type oh, clients. Right. Um, but really, what it showed you was like, hey, these same principles that we're working on uh, aren't necessarily just useful for the elite mm-hmm. athlete or the elite it's personnel. People, it's, people. Yeah, it's everybody. Yeah. So that was a nice thing to see that the same principles were effective everywhere, not just for these people that had a high price tag on them. It's the whole idea of trickle down being <laughs> actually effective as yeah. opposed to <laughs> yeah, pulling at the top. From a business standpoint, yeah. it was tough on them because they kind of had to, to keep the books tight. So yeah. it got to the point where like, hey, we know you love what you're doing. We know we love, uh, or you love who you're working with, you know, uh, but we're going to pretty much offer you your next position at below entry level because we know we can offer this opportunity to work in this facility with these people at less than entry level. And, yeah, and you, get if, filled. if you happen to value yourself and your experience beyond that, then you're probably not going to want the position. So, uh, and, and that's not specific to any one company, but I think in performance athletics in particular you're kind of leveraged against the the quality of the job and the quality of work Mm -hmm. uh, experience rather than your your compensation which is unfortunate so the you mentioned there was the 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 cover-up of some scans that maybe or maybe did not happen um are there any other standout cases from from your time there that really kind of come to mind Anything that you're like super proud of where someone kind of came in a position where he's like, I have no idea what I'm going to be able to do with this person, but I'm going to try. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it taught some important lessons as far as uh, being very practical. I mean, especially in the world of sport and the number of times that you'd have a, an athlete go down and, and the, the team doc and the coach that come to you and they say, look, we know this typically would take uh, six to eight weeks to heal, but the big game's in three weeks and he's playing. So uh, do what you can. 
you know, and, uh, and if you don't, we'll probably fire you, but, uh, you know, good luck. Uh, so at that point, rather than having this evidence-based system that was kind of by the book, you have to kind of throw the book out and say, yeah, some of that stuff is helpful, but it's pure outcome-based at that point. Like, you learn to be way more aggressive because mm-hmm. you really want to vet out each impairment rather than, okay, this guy is tight in this one body part. Like, I'm not going to sit here and try to massage it. I'm going to try to loosen it up as quickly as I can just to see what the result is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so having more of like an outcome-based approach despite having you know, this like very standardized process that we were taught, uh, I think it alludes back to what my previous mentor had said. It said, hey, be ready to, to kick the book out yeah. um, and be a little creative in, in, in doing so. So there are probably a number of cases, really, uh, kind of the same approach. You just be very straightforward with the people you're working with and being like, hey, here's what I think. Uh, here's what we're up against. Here's what we're going to try. And I actually, one, can't fully relate to what you're going through. And two, don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we're going to give it a, a full effort and just see how it goes. And more often than not, it turns out all right. Nice. So that was more, that was that shift away from kind of focusing on the process to achieving the result was that something that was a difficult thing to wrap your head around because going through school obviously everything is like you have certain criteria that you need to hit and then you end up in the real world and it's not really so much of an important thing to do yeah i think the the struggle was working against uh these pre-established structures so Mm -hmm. going back to brazil you go down there and you'd have this uh, strength and conditioning head coach, the top coach had been there for like 19 years and you kind of start learning that rather than evolving an annual process that developed into 19 years worth of experience, he had instead repeated one year's of experience 19, 19 times. times. <laughs> and uh, and because of that said, I have the tenure and experience to dictate everything that happened. So the more tenure and the more, more institution that you have, the harder it is to make change, which is why China's so good. Because <laughs> you don't necessarily have those barriers. Um, but even when we were taught, you know, you'd go classically to uh, screening from a physician to all of this diagnostic testing, and then you'd have to finally work through some, uh, you know, orthopedic, physical therapy type of assessment. And then if the athlete got through that on the tail end, then you would do some of the performance testing stuff, some of the stuff on the field. Mm-hmm. So kind of, once again, from an outcome efficiency standpoint, we said, okay, screw that. Rather than having everybody, if you have a system with uh, 200 players in it, Rather than having everybody go through the same volume of testing, let's just throw everyone in the middle. We'll go straight for the functional physical therapy type stuff. If there's hardcore problems, send them to the doctor. If they're kind of in the middle, then yeah, allow them to train and play but still work on stuff. And if they come through clean, then just have them go straight out to the field. They're not going to need all the the super detailed medical testing. So you still have this this triage where everything's available, but by creating more of like a bell curve, you don't have to put everyone through the same volume of testing. Mm Uh, so once again, not reinventing the different components, but just looking at a more efficient way to go through it. Uh, that took a while to appreciate. That probably took, you know, working through four or five years of uh, pro sport experience to get there. But then, you know, when I come to China now, uh, a lot of people are like, hey, man, like I've never seen anybody jump in and kind of, you know, go for it the way that you have. And and I know that it was a full part of the process leading up to coming here that kind of allowed me to, to jump in and, and do some of the things I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. So you, the way that you approach things is, as you said, like you're a lot more results based as opposed to taking off the criteria. That is quite different culturally to the way that things are generally done here. Um, yeah. For example, surgery. 
Yeah, surgery <laughs> is generally the thing that is advocated quite quickly here because, oh, there's something wrong, let's cut you open and fix it that way. Versus let's not cut you open and let's fix it another way. Yeah, I think the the evolution of, of medicine here is also fascinating. I mean, that's how I felt even with my first couple months here mm-hmm. a while back was leaving this place uh, on the way back home. I was like, well, I'm not sure it's a place I ever would have visited naturally. But now that I'm here, it's, it's you know, it's, it is fascinating, right? Yeah. So kind of what had happened uh, almost quite literally is that for, you know, 5,000 years of, of traditional medicine, there was a certain belief system. And then it was actually Adrian Peterson in the NFL who had torn his ACL, had surgery, and then come back to almost break the uh, rushing record within an eight-month time frame that have people open their eyes and they're like, well, hot water and herbology isn't going to quite do that. Like, we, we can't Maybe quite we see that result. Yeah. So, but in, in classic form, they tried to exactly emulate what he did. So they took one of their uh, Olympic divers and who had also torn an ACL. I'd say the previous uh, kind of, you know, Chinese Olympic uh, sports medicine policy was just have like maybe 300 people lined up behind you, almost the same level of training. And then mm-hmm. if someone goes down, it's just, you know, yeah, exactly. But, Someone's going to get a gold medal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't worry, we got reserves. <laughs> uh, but they, they brought over some, some specialists, some of the top uh, specialists from the U.S., Completely replicated the the entire process, uh, successfully repaired the, the the athlete's ACL, and then promptly put a hard cast over the thing for about three months and oh, left it in a bent knee angle. God. So when they took the cast off, it was you know the MRI came back clean, it's like ACL looks good, and then of course the leg was emaciated, the uh, the knee was stuck with scar tissue in about a fifty degree angle, and she couldn't walk. Um, so they almost immediately had to go in and break everything up again. Oh. Needless to say, they needed that next person in line. Uh, effectively ended her career. So it was kind of like, you know, unfortunately, the first people they asked to come over were the surgeons. The next people that caught on were the biomedical suppliers. Like, have you tried ultrasound? Have you tried lasers? Have you tried all this stuff? And then after that came the, around the same time came the pharmaceuticals. So when it came to emulating this idea of, of international orthopedic medicine, you had your your tech, your your medications and the surgeries, and then still the the local contrast was bed rest, hot water, kind of herbology type stuff. So, so that more active recovery just wasn't there from a, from a cultural standpoint. Yeah, I mean, you hear so many different stories, right? It's kind of the same way that uh, pregnant women, after having birth, they're usually, it used to be advised to the same kind of three months of bed rest. Uh, and one of the main uh, rationale for that was, hey, your body's incredibly weak. You need to recover, allow yourself to regenerate a little bit. So what would happen is that somewhere, you know, one to three months down the line, uh, somebody would try to get out of bed after total bed rest, like being bedpanned and everything. Uh, And the first time they try to sit up, they probably almost go into shock and be like, wow, I didn't realize how weak my body has become. My doctor was right. So it kind of becomes a self. Yeah, totally. So there was a lot of that. And I, I would say not to be too critical, but there's a mix of that versus uh, most people here would rather have passive treatment or some kind of, you know, they'd rather kind of lay on a table and be fixed for two hours passively rather mm-hmm. than uh, trying to do something active, right? Yep. So while I might be trying to champion like, hey, this is what works best, their counter argument is really, how can you be a doctor when you're telling me I need to fix myself with exercise? Yeah. You know, there's there's definitely a disconnect there. So that's all medicine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I came here for your expert opinion. You're giving me planks. This this <laughs> this can't be right. I want my money back. Uh <laughs> Yeah. Interesting. Interesting thing to, to overcome. Are you finding that in the um, in the time that you've been here that there is a shift going on in terms of 
what people are not necessarily comfortable accepting. But, I mean, I've been here since 2017, and even in that short period of time, it seems as though health and fitness is becoming more of a part of the cultural consciousness. Still nowhere near to the same extent that it is as at home. For example, like if you go out for a run, it might be because I'm a foreigner, but if you go out for a run, you will get stared at and people will take photos. But yeah. that's not necessarily just because I'm a novelty. It's because like there's actually someone out doing some exercise. Yeah. There is a shift going on though, and there is a lot more thirst for knowledge in that area have you seen that shift personally yeah so i think in in coming here and meeting more uh close friends who kind of also fell into the the health and wellness fitness industry both through nutrition and through you know more the 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 fitness culture up front uh, i'm not exactly sure what was behind kind of uh, especially the nutrition side of it that happened about five six years ago but I do know kind of through, you know, first and second contacts that there are people within the central government who are saying, hey, my sole responsibility is to promote running in China. Therefore, we are going to pay some Laois to go be the face of some races in some really remote territories. Uh, without knowing the exact numbers, I believe some five, six years ago, there might have been, you know, a handful of marathons uh, nationally, whereas this oh, year there's, there's, yeah, I think it literally was almost five races, maybe five, six years ago, and now it's over 2,000 easily. Yeah. Uh, so I think there is this kind of, you know, everything's done in volume, right? There's kind of this mentality of like, if running is good for healthy, then if we can get All the everybody, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and, and, and it's amazing, like when I first came here, I, I was uh, actually working out of Columbia Clinic, which is kind of in the, the Jingon Temple area, and I was on this 25th floor of the of the United Plaza building. You could see that big intersection down below, and, and as I'm staring there with literally no patients around me, I'm like, well, that guy's got knee pain, he's got back pain, he's got neck pain, you know, you just see it on the street. Uh, so in a city of 30 million people, roughly, uh, you know, there's no shortage of people you can work with, but the biggest barriers, uh, obviously we're going to be accessibility. Not everyone's going to have the resources for it. Uh, and this awareness, cause you know, nobody, I think when they experience pain here or when they start moving and have pain, uh, their, their awareness of trying to work on, you know, making movement more efficient or trying to, to work things out. There's, it's not the person that comes to mind. So the idea was then, well, one, how do we try to make things more accessible? And that's where kind of the empowerment of more locally trained uh, professionals is coming into play. But the awareness part, I mean, for, for, for all your efforts, you're thinking like, you know, could you imagine you're like, ah, oh, what if I really just wanted to teach people the importance of climate change and encourage the Chinese population to uh, start recycling more? Or the central government could just snap their fingers and the entire city starts recycling literally in the span of three days. Which actually happened this year, just as a little <laughs> bit of context. And there were some quite severe penalties if you put your <laughs> if you put your rubbish in the wrong box. I mean, it's phenomenal, right? You're like, all of a sudden, you walk this outside. This is a problem that needs to be fixed. We will fix it. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Like You walk out the door and there's, there's these sweet ladies in red vests that, that will you know berate you if you if you sort your trash inappropriately. And, and everybody complied immediately. Yeah. So Can you now, imagine trying to do that, like something like that at home. <laughs> exactly. So, like you know, growing up in a culture where you're you're taught to think critically and understand the reasoning behind every decision that's being made, and you have to believe in something before you start applying it. Here, it you know that, that's kind of the part, one of the magic of uh, China thing, right? It's uh, you know people don't need to believe it or understand it before they just start doing it. Almost fear of penalty or social mm-hmm. pressures and whatnot. So, I'm curious to see if at some point. Uh, there's going to be more central support for, for not just putting all these resources in the hospitals or, 
you know, with millions of people running now, I imagine a few of them got some issues, you know, so some people will self-select to, to continue with it, but there has to be a huge volume of people that are, uh, you know, feeling some, some, some breakdown somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah so it, I'm curious to see if there's going to be kind of this light that turns on where somebody in the, the central government says, Hey, you know, instead of going straight to the surgeon, try this first. And at which point we fully expect there will be, and there already are, there's, there's a t- like maybe thousands of professionals who are either unlicensed or untrained and they kind of, uh, you know, you see these like doctor stretch clinics starting to open up and they market themselves as, as uh, physical therapy mm-hmm. doctors and whatnot. So even without having the, the licensure, we're seeing the demand and there's people some em, you know emulating some of the services because I think they recognize that this is a huge uh, area that needs help. Big growth area. Yeah. So now we're playing this fun game of, you know, can we create a culture? Can we kind of create an example of, of what it could be? You know, try to create an identity for other people to follow but obviously we're doing it, you know, kind of the, the appropriate way with with licensure and training and lots of hands-on skills. So it'll be interesting to see if if that plays out and can kind of inspire others to do the same thing or if it's just going to be this explosion in the other direction where, you know, it's it's total mixed bag yeah. of, yeah, whatever. But, yeah, I think it's coming, though. I, 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 it'd be impossible to tell when, just like the recycling thing, but uh, I think at some point not just looking at how many resources can you produce, but how much cost can you save yeah. uh, by not pouring everything into the, the hospital system. Oh, for sure. And in terms of lost productivity as well, like if you cut someone open and then you stick them in a stiff cast for six months, yeah, that's a lot of time that someone's not able to contribute. And then especially if after that point, there still isn't the infrastructure in place to get them back to working order, as it were. Yeah, and, and the local uh, physicians, the surgeons, they genuinely want to help people. They got so much volume. I remember yeah. about two years ago, it was almost immediately after coming here, we uh, went to a conference with a lot of the, you know, maybe 50 of the best uh, doctors in China. We're sitting at a typical Gombe Baijiu uh, dinner, you know, to, to kind of network a little bit. Uh, and most of them, within, within the same breadth of, of, you know, raising a glass, they'd lean over and say, I don't get it. I uh, I did everything I'm supposed to. to. I uh, I repaired this Achilles tendon by the book. Uh, you know, same thing. Three months hard cast. Did the MRI follow up three months later? Everything looks good on the scan, Guy but uh, but he can't walk. And it was this genuine curiosity of of you know what do you think? Mm-hmm. Uh, and our whole purpose to be at the presentation was instead of three months in a cast, why don't you consider uh, three weeks in a cast, three weeks in a boot, three weeks in a brace, and maybe some you know, mobility and a little bit of band work in between, which mm-hmm. isn't necessarily the best protocol by itself, but it's playing this game of three months. Yeah, yeah. Compared to the local standard. Right. So, uh, so yeah, there was still, and that was just two years ago and there's still even some stuff going on creatively where you can see they kind of, you know, emulated a lot of the techniques, but they're they're without fully understanding all the concepts they are starting mm-hmm. to get creative. So I had a patient earlier this year who had some spinal pain, had some nerve pain going down one leg went to a spinal specialist and they're like, oh, well, you know, you don't need a full fusion of your lower back. We're just going to fuse the half that has problems. So, you know, we'll open up space on the nerve. You should be good to go. You look at the scan and there's like a rod with, but just half the, half the disc is open, which you can already see the other half collapsing. And of course the dude's like, yeah, my back still hurts. My left leg's starting to kind of be weird now. And (laughs) yeah. And then you're looking at this, you know, trying to not be skeptical because on, on one side you, you want to, you know, kind of win the confidence of the patient. On the other side, you don't want to screw your working uh, relationship with the surgeon. And everything they're doing is trying to save face. So, you know, if there is a bad outcome, it's entirely the fault of the patient. And most of the time they won't, 
follow up with them anyway. Yeah. Um, and it's it's not entirely to the fault of the yeah. surgeon. Like they genuinely want to help people. But I asked some of these guys, uh, how many surgeries do you do um, on per day on average? Some of them hit up to like eighteen to twenty four surgeries a day. God damn. Yeah. So like I don't <laughs> just, care who just you are. Just context. Like what what would be the average in the states? I mean, states you might get. Uh, it depends on the the procedure. If it's more of a joint replacement, those those can take about forty five minutes or an hour. But I mean, even then, like there's some recovery time, and yeah. usually you kind of see like the person you're working with before and afterwards. Uh, they might do, you know, six or seven on a really busy day, but. If you're if you're patient number twenty two out of twenty four, you might oh, you don't even have the opportunity to be like, hey doc, here's some coffee. Make sure you're you're rolling the dice. Yeah, but you know the the, the volume is insane, right? You know, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of a blessing and a curse because as you say, like if you're patient number twenty two, then probably not going to have the best outcome statistically. Man. But if you're patient number one, you've got a surgeon who has a tremendous amount of experience. Right, and if it's a common procedure, it's like, yeah, I know, I've, I've literally done this procedure thousands of times. Yeah, so it's it's kind of one of those uh, weird representations, though, because you will you get these guys market themselves, and they're like, I've done this surgery forty thousand times, <laughs> but it kind of brings. <laughs> Have back, you done it well forty thousand times? Yeah, it brings back shades of the guy um, who Vince was, Lombardi. Perfect practice. Practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it brings back shades of the uh, you know the 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 strength and conditioning specialist who'd done yeah. the same thing nineteen years in a row without evolving, or in this case, maybe getting a little too creative. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, I think they they do a pretty good job consistency wise, but because they have so much volume. Uh, they typically don't follow up with the patients anyway, and if you don't follow up with them, you never hear about a bad outcome. And uh, you know, ah, the, no news the, is good news. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, as far as they're concerned, they've had you know forty thousand times where the patients never complained, whether it be because of successful outcome or you know guanxi type issues. Uh, who who knows really? But uh, yeah, it's in this, especially in this uh, place and, and in many of the places around the world. Just because some of something is good doesn't mean more of that same thing is necessarily better. Uh, and that seems to be one of the more consistent mindsets uh, in some of the places I've been. Mm-hmm. I mean, that mindset of if something is working well, doing more of it is surely better. I and mean, that's not culturally unique. I mean, everyone and everywhere is guilty of that. Yeah, and when it comes to training, and for sure, for sure. Speaking your, speaking of yeah. training, then and going back to your um, your markathon, um, yeah, I was, your, I was just thinking that. Yeah, <laughs> thirty days of five k. What Run, could possibly running go wrong? running every day is not a good idea. I'm going to say that professionally. <laughs> Prior to this challenge, then, um, can you tell us a bit about your like your personal sporting journey? Yeah. I, so aside from the wine and delicious food in in San Francisco, which is still a factor here, which is still a factor. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that, that talk about mindset, right? I think, uh, you know, when you, when you pursue a goal, you maybe have different motives. Maybe if you have an intention set, uh, that, that intention will, will definitely change as you go through it. So, you know, I wasn't necessarily concerned with just pure weight loss, uh, but having had lost some 20 kg, I'd come back home from that first China trip. It was like, all right, well, there's there's this little uh, Olympic distance triathlon. I'd, I'd been forced to grow up uh, swimming, so I had, you know, at least good technique and a strong inner monologue from a lot of hours in the pool as a as a child, mm-hmm. not by choice. Uh, but you know, had the swimming down, enjoyed biking, had casually gone from like couch to you know 150 to 200k rides before with my mom, which nice. also wasn't smart, but it was it was kind of a fun you know, climb the top of the mountain type challenge. Uh, running was the biggest barrier. That was like, 
whole youth experience and team sport. If I was running, I was being punished. I've messed up. Therefore, coach is angry, and therefore, I'm running. Run laps. There was never a positive association with running. Is running, there ever a positive oh. association with running? Yeah, it depends on the perspective, right? But yeah, so like the running thing was just beyond me. I remember even trying, you know, going for uh, like you said, U.S. football, trying to get ready for the the upcoming season. I'd maybe go for one five k, and it was just you know it was near death experience, especially at altitude. And like God, I'm never doing that again. Just minimalist approach towards running. Uh, but getting ready for the Olympic try, you know, kind of is just, and when you're motivating yourself too, you're never totally consistent with the training plan. So I did just enough to get by, got through it. That went okay. Um, but that ended up being a good summer. I think that same summer I had a little bit of a, even like a personality shift. I kind of found this, uh, I don't know if there was such a thing as a confidence button. I finally found it and was able to hit it and kind of said, Hey, with where I'm at and what I've done and, and kind of what I love or, mm-hmm. or kind of my, my pillars of belief, like that's something that no one can take away. So I kind of did have this uh, epiphany about like little, little level of personal confidence and knowing that I could go other places and, mm-hmm. you know, be all right. So that was, I think that was an important transition. And then moving forward, I, I think there was going, going to Qatar and Brazil. It's like you're the lifestyle there was, it was kind of weird because you're working really long days, but there'd be times where you weren't doing much because either the coach wouldn't let you do anything or the player schedule was all over the place. So I didn't find myself doing much in the way of fitness for those whole next three years. It was very infrequent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, yeah, coming back to China, man, that was... And people come to Shanghai and they talk about the community here and the people here. And, and when I first came, I knew I was going to have to try to build some kind of reputation in the community. And it was actually FitFam, as I'm sporting my... FitFam hoodie tonight. Yeah. yeah, so it was actually uh, this effort to kind of go into this free fitness community to try to check out what it was about and try to, you know, try to network a little bit and, and just gain some exposure in this booming health and wellness industry here. Uh, one of my best buddies in the world, he'll laugh if he uh, listens to this, but, you know, he came to me uh, to the clinic with some some simple problems. He told me, he's like, Hey man, I organize these uh, you know five a.m. runs. Uh, we go from park to park in the dark to like you know, and we we go out towards the bun and we do some body weight hit stuff in the parks along the way. But yeah, we start at five, and I was just like, for fuck's sake, man, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds absolutely horrendous. <laughs> even even FitFam uh, when it was first described to me by my buddy that brought me over here, he's like. Yeah, you know, you could uh, get up and, and go to these stadiums at 6 a.m. and do burpees with a bunch of amateurs for free if you want. Like, that's a thing. And I'm like, I, and quite honestly, my first visceral response was, fuck that. That is never happening. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I had, I had one of the, the leaders, and it is. It's an entirely volunteer-led community. It's spreading internationally now. Um, and the premise is simple. Like, the only reason you show up is because you actually want to be there. Like, people yeah. will say hi, but there's no pretension of, like, how long you've been here, what do you do? Like, people don't care. It's like you're there to, to move, and it really is kind of just a follow-the-leader kind of a thing. Um, but, yeah, so it was one of their leaders that was seeing me as a patient, got me to finally come out. And once I, once I got out there, I was like, holy crap, this is amazing. It's basically uh, public space, free will, people who normally have these barriers of, hey, I have to pay for a gym membership or – you know, no matter what reason they go out there initially for, they go out there and they're kind of sucked into this, just this pure community of, mm-hmm. hey, let's just move. It doesn't have to be perfect. We're not pretending to be professional here, but let's just find some consistency in what we're doing. Uh, right around the first time I came out was when they had this 10-day challenge. And right away, they were just doing burpees and squats and, and you know, like uh, lunges every day of the week. And so it was this simultaneous 
uh, wow, this is an incredible way to get people moving. At the same time, it's like, mother of God, what are they doing? You know, they're going to do burpees and jump squats <laughs> every single day. Voluntarily at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, but at the, you know, I, I could immediately see how based on my background with uh, the sport, to me, the stuff that didn't seem that complicated, but it's like, hey, maybe on Monday you do this kind of movement and maybe Tuesday you do something else something and else. then Wednesday something else and then try to repeat that cycle twice so you at least have a little variety you know just a, so you're not quite hammering the same, same movements groups over and over once again. again running every day is not a great idea but uh yeah so if you're not doing the same movement and running if you run well it's probably the most tolerable uh, there's a lot that goes into the efficiency of that as well but knowing right away I had something to contribute to that community was a huge part of it so I got sucked into it before you knew it I was waking up at 4 a.m running in the dark like an idiot from park to park to the bund uh, and that same year, really within the first few months of being here, all of a sudden uh, kind of was appointed the opportunity to help the community prepare for the marathon. So nice. for the Shanghai Marathon in November. So kind of, you know, putting yourself out there and saying, hey, I, I, I practice what I preach a little bit. I, of course, signed up for the marathon, which if you had told me within the first, you know, five, six months of moving here that I'd be signing up for a marathon and getting up running in the, the streets in the pitch black, uh, my literal response was, where I'm from, you're more likely to get struck by lightning while being mauled by a bear. Like, it's, it's just not happening, you know? Um, so, but yeah, just the consistency and having some extrinsic motivation. You'd be in these WeChat groups where you're like, eh, I'm probably not coming out tomorrow. And then one of your buddies would be like, you're going, bitch. You're like, shit. <laughs> like, from some of the nicest people you've ever met. And you get called out in front of 500 people. It's like, yeah, oh, the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, so, like, genuinely from some of, like, the sweetest people you know, too. And you're like, all right, well... Now, now I'm a little more accountable to some outside of myself. So from the uh, Shanghai Marathon in 2017, which was largely a painful experience, uh, to I guess just two years later, I did something that I honestly in my heart believed would never happen. You know, it's kind of like nothing is certain in life but change and death and the fact that I will never do an Ironman. Uh, I remember the first time that I'd seen it about 10 years ago, I just looked at what it was and I was like, holy shit, that is for sure never happening. Like, I don't know if you've ever encountered something where you just knew it in your heart and soul that it was never going to happen. Deeply visceral feeling. Yeah, that will never be a thing. And, and since then, it's kind of been my, my white whale a little bit. Um, but it, it wasn't at all how I originally envisioned it. It was uh, earliest year, did a, did a half Ironman, which was more manageable than I thought it was going to be, even though it was hot. Just for a little bit of context. Yeah. And a half Ironman is what, and then a full Ironman is what? Yeah, so the, the half or the 70.3, roughly you have to uh, swim, well, you're supposed to swim 1.9K in the water, but, you know, most people are going halfway out to sea, and it's never a straight line. So let's just call it 2K, uh, 2,000 meters swimming in the water. Then you have to get out and do 90K on the bike, and then a half marathon. Which, it, like, once again, it took a little while to, to find the consistency where that was even tolerable. Uh, but I actually got through it okay. I was like, okay, that was manageable. It took me just a little over six hours. Uh, you know, and then learning how trying to push yourself six hours at a time is very different metabolically than trying to do the same thing twice over. Uh, so the full distance Ironman is, of course, let's just call it 4,000 meters of swimming, 180 kilometers on the bike, and then getting off the bike and doing a full marathon. Which, once again, insane. <laughs> but, like, the, you know, you project it like that. Like, you kind of mentally uh, see it all in one piece. And sadly, like, maybe each of those by themselves are, 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 you know, like, maybe more manageable. But 
just the thought, when's the last time you rode a bike for seven hours, got off, and then said, I'm gonna you know what I feel like doing right now is running a full marathon. Yeah. Uh, so that mentally, once again, even in the training, like I think the big takeaway this year has been like, you know, we all kind of complain about not having time to do things. And, yeah. and if I really was going to go for it, actually, the, the reason I went for it this year was because of some funny New Year's resolutions in Thailand over the uh, over the New Year's with some friends. I was like, if this if I'm going to do it, this is going to be the, the year. year. <laughs> yeah. And might have been in a um, an altered state of mind where I wasn't thinking clearly, obviously. But yeah. So in making that commitment, once again, with lots of external peer pressure, uh, you find yourself making a little space and time and, you know, you miss a workout, whatever, if you crush a workout, whatever, it doesn't matter. You know, you kind of have to find, uh, those little bits of consistency mm-hmm. five, six times a week. Uh, but because I'm also working six days a week, trying to redefine physical medicine as, as it's known in China, uh, you know, there'd be days where the workout plan was like, all right, you're one day off, you're going to bike 180 K then the very next morning, you're going to wake up and bike another 70K and then run a 20K after that and then go to work. So that turned out to be, uh, of all the, the brick training where you're supposed to combine, you know, the other. bike to specifically prepare for that part where your legs are tired and then you have to run, skip most of that. Uh, didn't, didn't, you know, didn't think that was, uh, just certain mornings I was like, nah, not today. this is <laughs> foolish. Uh, so even mentally going into it, I was like, I'd done most of the preparation, felt pretty good with, uh, my conditioning minus the part where mentally I hadn't really tackled the, the marathon after the bike part. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, no, the, the actual race, uh, like I said, I think it was more manageable than I thought, but it was so different, you know, rather than having it be this tremendous high intensity feat, it really was how efficient can you be and how much can you accomplish while expending as little energy as possible. And by the time I faced it, I was actually uh, more prepared than I thought. Mm -hmm. But once again, completely different experience than what I would have projected. How long did it take you to prepare for? Uh, I think I had kind of a a three-month approach to it. But once again, that included the the October holiday, which, you know, it was like like new right away. I was like, oh, boy. Um, and then I also had a trip home, uh, to back home to California to see family I hadn't seen for a long time. And so they were looking at me kind of weird though. Right. That was just like, yeah, I'm home for a week, but I got to go run 15 K like every day. So I'll be right back. Uh, so I think right away they, they looked at me and be like, man, China, China changes. Something's done. (laughs) Something's happened. (laughs) Pollution or something like something. Right. Um, and, and obviously over such a long course of time, it's a much slower evolution within yourself, but Mm -hmm. to kind of have, you know, people that knew you really well previously kind of see the difference over the course of a couple of years. Like they were like, holy crap, what's, what's wrong with you? Um, but yeah, so I did, I did like per training plan. One of the smartest things I did is I actually recruited the help of a a coach, a guy named Peter, who's a phenomenal athlete himself here in town. Uh, and he at least kicked me a training plan where like, once again, if I if I missed one, he could see it on the on the Training Peaks app, and I would kind of feel bad because I'm like, oh, I don't want to make Peter, you know, I don't want to disappoint him. Yeah, uh, and he, he could he could just like see everything I was doing. So even when I was home, I was just like, oh my god, the last thing I want to do right now is go out. But having a little bit of accountability and having some, uh, I guess what seemingly was like extrinsic motivation, but he would tell you he wasn't really doing anything. It was of course me me trying to actually get out the door and do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to spend time at home where I was spending good chunks of the day going out and running on pavement once again. It's just like, you know, there, there were definitely times I questioned, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I did it, did it through the, the trip home, did it in India during the October holiday. And, uh, and this is where I can't speak 
largely enough about the role of, of my girlfriend Lauren and and just her just her consistency in her personal life to where you know I'll, I'll even say I'm just a better version of myself by being around her because mm-hmm. like she's so I, I don't know if it's naturally consistent but I definitely find myself motivated just trying to keep up she's also largely the reason I'm doing this market lawn thing um, but yeah just even through you know the India trip we could enjoy it together but she's like hey yeah, we're supposed to. Yeah, well, she's like, "Hey, we're supposed to go surf at this surf spot, but why don't we run to the surf spot and then, which we would, and then, uh, and then I kind of added on to it. I was like, "Hey, I can swim in the ocean back to where we're staying after surfing, which was you know a good like hour long effort, and and you know it, of course it's mixed factors, but I, I had to tell her very directly like for sure I wouldn't be doing these things without you." Like nothing else is clear other than without you being here and your influence, for sure these things would not be happening. So, shout out to Laura for the bastion of stability that she is providing. <laughs> yes, inspiration to many, not sure. not just myself. Sure. So, you're training in Shanghai. Where, what time during the year was this training happening? This was kind of the lead up to the the half Ironman was uh, in May, and then of course. So when I picked my the the full, it was entirely based on the calendar. I'm like, okay, the only time of year realistically with work that I'm going to be able to do this is going to be fall. Mm-hmm. So you look at the schedule. I'm like, da 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 da. Okay, there's one in Malaysia. You know, I haven't really gone to Malaysia. That'll be cool. So I, I picked the Langkawi race, and right away another one of my buddies in the in the FitFam community. I was like, hey, have you heard about this uh, this race? Because he's an accomplished Ironman athlete himself, and he's like, it's absolutely insane. Like you know, it's going to be. <laughs> Uh, 39 degrees or like 100, 105 degrees uh, Fahrenheit with 90% humidity. And he had done the half distance previously. And then he's just like, you know, thank God I'm not doing the full. People dropping out left, right, and center. People are like, this is arguably either in the top three or even the hardest race, including the championship in Kona, Whoa. just because of the damn humidity. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he was just like, yeah, you're absolutely insane. I wouldn't do it. And then, and then I talked to, to do that one. (laughs) Yeah. And then I talked to another Chinese, uh, sponsored Ironman athlete who also had tried it and dropped out because of the heat. And he was like a sponsored, you know, high profile athlete. And I'm just like, Oh boy. And like part of me is like, yeah, it makes it a little more enticing. This might as well be like a full, you know, battle of, of, uh, as hard as it can be. But, uh, yeah, luckily the Vietnam race for the, the half in May was, pretty hot uh and then through the summer here in shanghai Shanghai in the summer also pretty hot uh and i don't do well in the heat man i'm definitely more of that uh, alpine environment growing up but um by the time we got there yeah malaysia like 20 percent of the field dropped 10 percent of the field dropped on the the bike and another 10 percent on the run wow just because of the heat but um this is where i really if i wasn't gonna give myself credit for anything going back to that whole you don't know a whole lot more than you do know. And in this case, actually asking people for advice, all the little details about, especially from Peter, being like, basically, give yourself diabetes the day before the race. Don't eat any vegetables, nothing with oils. Uh, as Our many, as many simple, yeah. you know, eat, eat candy all day long. Just pump. You should feel bloated and like, you're, like you can't move before the race starts. That's ideal. Uh, and then uh, our buddy Andrew is like, hey, you know, Hold off on the caffeine till the end. Wait until like the 35th kilometer of the marathon before that first Coca-Cola and it'll be the best Coke of your life. And pretty much every little piece of, uh, of detail. size, put it all together. Yeah, and without me appreciating what it would have been like otherwise, although this, the race was sponsored by Red Bull and every time I saw someone chug a whole bunch of Red Bull, they just immediately lost everything. 
So I waited till the very last lap before that one. But um, all those little details and just knowing that I was I was kind of feeling vulnerable. So I really wanted to actually get some help. Take the take the help from where it comes. Yeah, to. and the help was hugely helpful. Mm-hmm. Like. <laughs> Funny enough, you know, if you if you allow yourself to kind of admit just how maybe uh, ill prepared you you are and, and how much help you would would benefit from, mm-hmm. I, I think made all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Did yeah, your professional background help in the preparation in terms of because you mentioned preparing three months. Yeah. Did your your background in physical therapy did that help with you being able to kind of optimize your training and optimize your recovery such that you've got a lot of training to do in a short space of time? I mean, three months is a not a particularly long period of time to prepare for a full iron. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's a it's a build up, right? And, and I've helped enough people go through running where uh, you know I, I've created my own belief system. And, and sure, I had to I think apply that in in retrospect. But if somebody wanted to run, I'm like, hey, you know, you know, you don't just have to run. You can work on partial range, lower body strength. You don't have to be doing deep squats because you're not going to be squatting when you're running. Hopefully, so yeah, partial range, lower body strength. Uh, you know, mass amounts of hip and torso stability just to allow you to absorb the impact a little more. You can work on running mechanics. That's where the the pose method stuff I've been looking at has been particularly helpful, just trying to higher cadence, trying to pull your foot off the ground rather than push through Mm -hmm. it. Uh, And then doing some cardiovascular cross training, obviously you're already biking and swimming anyway, but doing something that's going to minimize the impact on your body. And then of course, running for the sake of running because there is only one thing that's going to prepare you for having that amount of impact in your bone structure even so the running part is important but having some some options between that five tool approach and then some of the periodization i mentioned previously the same same advice i would give to fitfam of like don't or anyone really don't don't hammer yourself on the same thing multiple days in a row uh yeah i think that that played out and and Going back to even the influence from Exos, the the Mark Verstegen mantra of the simple things done savagely well. And, mm-hmm. and I add on to it and say the simple things done savagely or masterfully well will, will basically eliminate your need to supplement or complicate things too much. So, yeah, I think, you know, you look at the whole process. It's been this seven, eight year progression where all of a sudden things are much more attainable than they were before uh, and, and doing things simply and consistently as much as we all know it uh you know it turned out to be uh, pretty empowering nice any moments on that course where the wheels fell off a bit because you're how long were you racing for uh 13 hours and 40 minutes 13 hours and 40 minutes of continuous exertion which is better than i thought it was going to be and like i said this is funny where you start talking to people that do the races right because like you even on wechat you're like hey i'm gonna i'm gonna do it and everyone else is like jayo you got this and the people that done it before they're like welcome to hell like literally (laughs) on the on the wechat and then there's some there's some candid stuff that happens on the race everybody has a funny like you know i shat myself story some sometime (laughs) on the course sure enough so like I, i felt pretty good with the whole preparation for everything and uh, you know, energy wise, like everything was feeling great. And then like the last 15 K of the bike at some point with all the, you know, the, the isotonics and the, and the gels and everything that's going in there very casually. I'm like, everything's going good. Up, oh, feel a little discomfort, a little pressure. And that wasn't just air. <laughs> well, that's all right. But then the, once again, the preparation of, uh, having a change of clothes and whatnot, just knowing the what ifs. And, and at that point, honestly, uh, not to be too punny, but you don't give a shit. Like, you know, at that point you're like, it's the least of your concerns. Uh, still funny in the back of your mind, like how candid you can be like, well, that just happened. But, uh, it wasn't like a major, major issue, but 
you know, even in the transition time, I knew my goal wasn't to try to get some personal best mark. It was simply just to complete the the task. Uh, so even in the transition time, I took like 25, 30 minutes in the transition. You walk in, there's people from all over the world holding ice over their balls, just going, oh, this would normally be sensitive, but it feels really good right now. And and just kind of the, the nonverbal communication, looking at each other like, can you believe we have to run a marathon right now? This is insane. What are we doing? Uh, so there was some, some camaraderie, some trauma bonding, and then you know, kind of took my sweet time before I finally started running. And I knew I had at that point, maybe seven and a half hours, eight hours to finish. The The course cutoff was at 1 a.m. But in the back of my mind, Lauren had also said, hey, uh, could you not take all night? I'm going to be waiting for you at the end. So if you could finish before 10, that'd be better. That'd be sweet. Yeah. It's <laughs> just like, okay. You know, so once again, that external motivation. Uh, no, other than that, like relatively incident free. And I think everything was from the preparation and, and, uh, some good advice about just visualizing all the things that could happen, such as the things mentioned, and then also uh, visualizing how you want things to be was was hugely helpful. Nice, nice. So before before we kind of wrap up, because we've been going for a, it's probably the longest one I've done. So <laughs> shout out there. Oh, good. Um, one question that I've asked all of my guests so far is one of the purposes of this podcast is kind of digging into mental health yeah and that could be things like anxiety or depression or whatever if there was someone who was listening to this now yeah. and they find themselves in a position where they're particularly struggling um they could just be in a particularly black space or whatever what could be what would be one thing that you would recommend that they do that would help them move forward out of that yeah, so this is a story I don't tell many people. Um, about the end of my first year here, I had a full uh, anxiety episode. And it was fascinating just because of having, you know, studied such things and understanding the physiology of it all. Uh, it was the most bizarre thing. Obviously, I was kind of strung out from, from work and all this energy going out and all, this, and all the things we talk about saying, you know, recovery, hydrate, nutrition, blah, blah, blah. This was an instance where I actually felt my body and my nervous system feel a perceivable threat uh, to survival. And of all the things, obviously there was a lot of environmental stress, but the trigger was looking at the fake nuclear attack on Hawaii, uh, where some, somebody had put a message on the billboards in Hawaii where this North Korea had sent an incoming missile. This is not a drill. You got 30 minutes to, to get down and hide. And then later on, they kind of were like, oh, just kidding. We hit the wrong button. Da, 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 da. And the con- yeah. And the conversation wasn't even remotely on like, there isn't a wrong, like you have 30 minutes to live button. Um, but it was the fact that, you know, so many people in that experience, I had some friends that were on the Island. They made these videos online about like, if this is the end, I would have lived my life so differently. They're holding their family and children. I wouldn't have worked so hard. Like I would have put a higher value on the things that really matter. And you know, so there were a couple takeaways there. One, really questioning, like, what are we actually valuing? What is all this energy out getting us in return? And two, how is there a credible threat that we're almost under nuclear attack? Like, are we closer to this global stress point uh, than we really realize? If, if, if viscerally we feel it's actually credible that a nuclear bomb could be coming over our heads at some point. Uh, so for whatever number of factors, that just completely set everything off where I had this total moment of numbness. I didn't feel anything, like complete emotionless Mm -hmm. and then like full-blown anxiety attack. So obviously I was kind of interested in what was happening, but I also recognized physiologically what was happening. Uh, So for anybody that goes through any of these states 
where, you know, I think previous to, to having one, I, I would have said, oh, maybe you can separate yourself from the experience. But when you're in the moment, like it really is, it's your full belief systems. And, you know, in the moment, it's, it's almost like you're more who you are at that time than at any other time. So I would actually encourage people to not dissociate from these extreme moments of stress or depression. I've certainly been through depressive states as well. Uh, another story I didn't tell is like part of the reason I was so big in San Francisco is I went through a pretty big uh, depression from a past relationship. The punchline to that one is my my girlfriend left me for another girl on the rugby team. But uh, sweet, that's San Francisco, right? <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> um, no, obviously it's not quite that simple. There's a lot of factors that go into it, but. I think each of those things coming out of it and looking back on it at some point with the depression, you can say, hey, I'm doing pretty good. I got pizza and wine. I'm doing all right. And then when you truly find more of a, like a pure happy state, it's only then you can look back on it and go, oh, damn, like I actually yeah. wasn't where I thought I was going to be. So anytime you go through something like that, I think you have to give yourself the ability to go through these processes and not be so critical of how you felt in the moment and realize that you know, our perception and even our personality is subject to the physical health and then those, those chemical processes in your brain. They, I, I would hate the saying that my mom uh, would give me, like, you know, everything happens for a reason, which doesn't tell you anything. But there is a reason everything happens. So when you go through those states and the highs and the lows, don't be so self-critical. Just acknowledge the feelings are there for a very real reason. And then going back to the only things that are inevitable in life changes one of them. At some point you'll be able to look back on it and learn from it. Um, you know, like I said, the, the highs are never forever high and the lows are never forever low. But I think the people that truly reflect and try to better understand the nature of why things are the way they are. Why without, was the high so high? Why yeah. was the low so low? And without trying to pursue like a perfect understanding, just have a theory. Because the next time something happens like that, you can kind of test that theory out. And if your theory is close to the truth, then you'll be able to predict some things. And if your theory sucks, then you're going to you're gonna learn more. So, yeah, the mental health thing is, is interesting. But I think more of us go through those experiences. It's not just this dichotomy of those who have mental health issues and those that don't. I think more of us could be more aware of kind of those highs and lows a little bit. Well, mental health is physical health, as you say. And if you're not looking after your body, then subsequently you're not going to be looking after your mind and if you're not looking after your mind then your body is going to be suffering as well yeah and and we're more as much people like to i'm not to say that people don't believe that you know there's a detachment from spiritualism and whatnot but there really is more of a physical basis to everything that we see and think and feel and believe than i think most of us appreciate nice awesome that was rolling forwards i hope you enjoyed listening to this as much as i enjoyed recording it If you enjoyed this episode or you feel that there is something that I should be talking about or someone that I should be talking to, please don't hesitate to get in touch. The most effective way to do that is to leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcasting app you are listening on. I will read any and all reviews, so please leave me your comments so I can provide you with even more value. Again, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will see you next time.